Okay, this morning's readings from James, chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with, with, the, with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was, the, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we are uh, going through, we're not quite halfway, we're going through the book of James and uh, the, the series is called Real Religion and uh, we, we've been seeing week after week now that James is writing to a, to a variety of churches in the, uh, in, in the region where he is, uh, the ancient Near East and uh, he is writing to address this particular problem that he sees in the churches so soon after the days of Jesus and his apostles. We're talking 20 years down the line, if that. And he sees this problem uh, that we're calling fake religion. Uh, it's, it's a religion that looks like Christianity. It sounds like Christianity. People are, are able uh, to speak and, and, and uh, pass themselves off as Christian. And yet he is very, very concerned that this, uh, this religion is sort of growing up among the churches. And um, if it was a problem for James in his day, uh, so soon after Jesus himself, um, then, of course, for us, we need to take note as the modern day church, the local church, um, because we are just as susceptible as we have been seeing week after week of, of falling into the trap of fake religion instead of the real religion of Jesus and the gospel. So this morning, we're going to look at this passage that um, uh, the Mark has read for us, um, Faith and Works. And it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a classic passage. You maybe have heard a sermon on it before. I have never, ever preached a message on this before. So here goes. Um, but it's, it's a big one. It's a biggie. Faith and works. And, and how faith and works uh, work together. It's just been a topic of so much discussion and debate and war uh, within the church. Uh, but one thing that we, we're going to look at this morning, sorry, two things we're going to see from the text this morning. Uh, number one is that fake religion divorces Faith and works. Whereas real religion marries them together. Fake religion divorces faith and works. Real religion marries them together. So we're going to spend a, the first half looking at fake religion and how that works. Because once we've identified that, we're in a better position then to see if um, any of that chimes true in our own life. So first of all, fake religion divorces faith from works. And we get that from verses 14 through to 17 in that passage. And what I mean is uh, fake religion, those who follow fake religion will try and separate faith and works, good works. Uh, they'll try and uncouple the two. Uh, and according to James, and he's, he mentions this twice at least uh, in this passage, faith 
without works is dead. It is dead. He says that in verse 17, verse 26. It is good for nothing. Um, There is no ultimate value of having faith without works. Um, In fact, he says in verse 14, he sort of puts in the form of a question. It is powerless to save you. Faith without works is powerless to save you. But there are evidently those in in his churches or the ones that he is familiar with at the time who are evidently living or teaching or saying that it is possible to have faith alone without the actions to back it up. There are people in the churches that he is addressing that say faith is all you need. That's all that's important. Everything else is, is just details, secondary, whatever. But according to James, and unfortunately we see this very commonly in our own day, the world sees it in our own day, this is just religious games played by religious people, uncoupling faith from works. Religious games that religious people play, and and the the way that they get away with it, and the reason why fake religion is, is so popular, is because there is some truth in saying it's all about faith. There is some truth, but it's a distorted truth. Because those who follow fake religion are not just interested in truth, they're interested in covering up the reality. More of that later, more of the uh, the necessity of faith later on. Um, But there are some in the churches that are saying it is possible uh, to have all the right beliefs, to confess the the orthodox, the true faith, you know, of, of, of the church, to say lots of Christian things. It's possible to do all those things and yet not be a true Christian. And as with all forms of, of fake religion, it is possible you know, to pass yourself off as the real thing. And yet, like every fake, it's, it's, it's a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. In fact, James says down in verse 19, you believe that God is one. Good for you. You do well. This, this, this phrase, God is one, was, was the sort of the bedrock of, of uh, confession of, of the faith of Israel. You know, hear, O Israel, it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. And so forth. The Lord is one. You know, you can confess orthodox faith. Great, whatever, good for you. But the problem is, according to James, we'll see this as we go on. If you don't have any works that are attached to that, if that does not produce any actions in your life, if it does not grow any fruit in you, then it is dead. It's rubbish. Look at verse 15. He gives this uh, real life scenario, I suppose. A person or people um, with obvious material need. Uh, Someone who is cold because they're lacking sufficient clothing, someone who is hungry because they're, they're lacking sufficient food. And according to James in verse 15 and 16, the person who follows fake religion is content to go to that poor person and say, go in peace, be warm, be filled, all the best to you. But in verse 16, he, says he, will, he will fail to give that poor person what he needs, the things he needs for his body, the things she needs for her body. But the astounding thing is at the beginning of verse 15, it says, if a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking food comes in. This is a brother or sister. This is a fellow believer. This is happening within the church. James is utterly astounded and so must we be too. Those who follow fake religion will have such people in their church and will say blessings to you, best wishes. The one that really gets my goat, thinking of you. 
Fake religion is content to give spiritual platitudes and empty words, but does not back it up with action. The follower of fake religion says, I have faith, I'm good. But they have no compulsion or interest in in works or actions because they simply don't need them, because they've divorced faith from works. See, folks, there's nothing wrong, of course, with with words of blessing or encouragement or or, or sharing biblical truth with with someone. That's, That's a good thing. We're encouraged to do that in the Bible. But this is the problem. The problem is when we use religious words as a cover for our neglect, a a cover for our hard-heartedness, using religious sayings as an excuse for a failure to act. And this is what James says, if that is your faith, then it is dead. It is nothing. Why, why do you think, though, people follow fake religion if it is as dead and as obvious as James puts it? Why are people, why are we, potentially anyway, content to follow fake religion? Well, here's what I think. On, on one level, I think it is possible for us to convince ourselves that because we have ascribed to some set of beliefs or some confession of faith or what have you, that we therefore feel a certain sense at one level of inner peace and assurance. I have confessed these things, I believe them somewhere along the line, therefore I'm good with God. I've signed on the dotted line. I have this this peace, this sense that everything is therefore right because I'm believing the right things and God will definitely bless that. I'll receive the spiritual benefits because that's what Christianity is all about, right? But according to James, he says, rubbish, whatever. He says in verse 19, even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you think demons and Satan himself believes in Jesus? Of course he does. Do you think demons and Satan himself understands the gospel? Absolutely. They understand it better than we do, often. Do you think they believe in God and the existence of God? Of course they do. The difference is that they believe on one level and yet their hearts are filled, if they have hearts, their inner being is filled with utter hatred and disdain towards God. Of course they believe. And James is saying to the church here, even demons believe. Belief, faith, so what? They shudder. They're actually responding in some ways to, not in a good way, but they're shuddering before the very name and person of God. They fear God. They're actually moving. You you people believe, says James, and yet you're motionless. You're not moving anywhere. So one, one reason why people follow this fake religion is for a sense of inner peace and assurance, although it's superficial. Superficial. Another reason I think people follow fake religion is because, let's just face it, it is, it is easier. It is frankly easier. Because it costs us nothing, does it, to, to believe. It costs us nothing to, to own a set of private beliefs. Because, because fake religion divorces faith and works, it is, it is possible Uh, to convince yourself that there's no need to get involved with the messiness and the awkwardness 
of, of, of church life, of, of community life. Because you can have your faith, you can have your benefits before God and you can avoid all that stuff. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, if you want a nice, neat and tidy set of propositions you can hold in your brain and, and steer clear of other people, which is you and God and you think you're right with God, fake religion is a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot cheaper than actually the real religion of real people, of flesh and blood, and the mess of real life and real relationships. It's a whole lot easier. Those who follow fake religion seek all the benefits and want none of the costs. So as far as they're concerned, it is a win-win situation. Good with God, forget the rest. But as we've seen through this text so far, James says that is fake. That is rubbish. That is false. It is dead. It's like having a heart. What's the point in having a heart if it's not beating? What's the point in having a faith if it's not beating? So why does James address this issue? Well, we've kind of answered that already at the start. He addresses this issue not because it's a potential problem or hoping to prevent a problem in the future. Maybe one day this will be an issue. He, he, he is addressing this now because it is a live issue. He sees these things not just as sort of parables, but this is most likely happening in actual churches that he is aware of. And not just one church, because it says at the beginning of his letter, he writes to the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion. That's his way of saying to all the believers out there scattered around the ancient Near East. He, he doesn't have any one city or one church in mind. This is all churches as far as James is concerned. And he's writing to them. And he's hearing specific stories back from, back from the field. And he's hearing these recurring problems. Not them, not these guys. They're having the same problem. So he writes this letter to address those issues that are actually coming up in the church. And as we said at the start, if this is a problem uh, just 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line from Jesus and his apostles, um, then of course it's going to be a risk for us too. We're further away. It's reasonably common, unfortunately, in our day and age to make Christianity merely about having the right facts on board, about having the right beliefs. In fact, uh, we're very good. I say we. I mean, we, the, 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 the church, are very good at educating people and drilling them and giving them all the information so that they can, they can list all the facts of the faith and they can even articulate them. And that's, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is it, if that is all we produce in people, then according to James, it's not enough. It is a dead religion. And maybe some churches you have visited in the past have communicated this. It is all about head knowledge and, 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 and teaching. And that's it. But according to James, it is not real religion. It's a live issue. That's why he addresses it. But the second reason that he addresses it is that it has an effect. It is not passive or inert. Because if people are living out of fake religion within the, the churches, then imagine the effect that, that will have in the community. Because if people have this attitude and uncouple or, or, or divorce faith and works, the poor are not going to be served, are they? The hungry will just go hungry when fake religion prevails. In these sort of faith only type churches. The cold, who are cold because they are poorly clothed, will just simply remain poorly clothed. The hungry, 
who are hungry because they have no food will just simply remain hungry. Fake religion, you see, maintains the divide between the rich and the poor. Not only that, but those looking into the the so-called Christian community from outside, the world looking in, will just see a community that severely lacks integrity. Will be basically, in their eyes, a bunch of hypocrites getting together, talking all about Jesus, singing, having a good Jesus time. But they will say, you don't look like Jesus, you certainly don't behave like Jesus. Eventually, such a community, if it is uh, influenced by fake religion and... and, 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 uh, the majority is fake religion going on. Such communities, such churches just become a safe haven for religious types. A safe haven for the rich and for the comfortable, the inactive. Churches will simply become pasty and powerless. They will just become country clubs that use religious words. Which are the worst forms of country clubs you can go to. Fake religion is a live issue and it will have an effect if we allow it to prosper. I've been reading the biography, one of the biographies of a man called George Whitfield. You may not have heard the name before, maybe you have. Uh, but he's considered by many, uh, myself included, to be one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever seen. Certainly the greatest evangelist of the 18th century. George Whitfield. Um, was from Bristol, or from Gloucestershire, actually. Uh, And he was pivotal in uh, the period known as the Great Awakening in England and Wales, uh, and also across in the American colonies, as they were at the time. And following his conversion, uh, George Whitfield, the young man that he was, just a a teenager, had a sudden and strong desire to go out to Georgia, the the colony as it was there in in, in America, uh, go out to Georgia, and uh, minister to the poor. It was a very poor place. Um, it's probably only a thousand or so people that lived in Georgia at that time. And uh, they, were, they were very poor, very destitute. And so at the age of 24, George Whitfield set off uh, on a dangerous crossing across the Atlantic in a boat called the Whitaker with uh, families and young people and soldiers and all sorts of people crossing to the New World. And uh, in the... Uh, biography that I've, I'm reading at the moment, it lists all the bits and pieces that he brought with him. He'd been raising, raising money for the poor in Georgia, and uh, it gives, I just want to give you a rough idea of the kind of stuff that he carried with him, the kind of swag. Um, there's loads. I mean, he's got loads of theological books and Bibles and all that. That's, that's, that like, goes without saying. He's an evangelist, right? And he wants to get the good news out. Um, but, but loads of clothing as well. Uh, stockings for men, women, boys and girls, shoes for all of them, caps, three dozen hats, six dozen women's caps, 24 striped flannel waistcoats, 26 pairs of canvas breeches, um, threads, cotton laces, etc. But then he goes on with the hardware as well. A dozen tinder boxes, three dozen ink horns, uh, six case of knives, uh, uh, loads of sleeve buttons, 13 pen knives, uh, 50 pounds of shot, 100 weight and a quarter of gunshot powder, scissors, buckles, corkscrews, a list of drugs as well. Uh, I didn't know half of these were drugs, but apparently rhubarb, senna, Jesuit's bark. Uh, that sounds a bit rude. Snake root, I'm not going to read that one out. Heart's horn powder. And then among the provisions uh, for the house, a firkin of butter, a Cheshire cheese, a Gloucester cheese, uh, 100 lemons, 
Two hogsheads of fine wine, three barrels of raisins, cloves, mustard, pepper, oatmeal, oranges, stationery, including four reams of foolscap writing paper, half a pound of wafers, copy books, lead pencils, slate pencils, and ingredients to make ink. George Whitfield, one of the greatest evangelists, took all this stuff with him so that he could minister not only this to the spiritual, but he could minister to the material. He realized the people he was going to meet were incredibly poor. And he went to minister in body and in soul, material and spiritual. He understood there is no such thing as faith without works. Faith without zealous activity on behalf of the poor. That would be unthinkable for Whitfield. Not only did he minister to the poor in Georgia, he came home to England and ministered in places where you would never find any Christians in those days. He went to the prisons, which were pits of poverty and despair. He went to the coal fields of Gloucestershire, bringing the good news and ministering indeed to those people. Here at Foundation Church, we, we say we are a gospel-centred church and, and, and we are rightly, in my view, emphasising the gospel of Jesus. We are cherishing the good news of Jesus above all. Uh, the backbone, he is the centre, he is the high point of everything that we'll ever do. It is glorious, it is wonderful to love and enjoy the gospel. But we are also a community on mission. Together we do this, together we bring the good news, we are operational, we are moving in a direction. That's what it's all about. We are on active service as a team. Uh, by God's grace, real faith is growing, real religion is growing. So my, my, my challenge, my, my plea to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is do not buy into the lie that you are just here to warm a seat and punch your card Sunday after Sunday. Do not buy into the lie that says you just have to maintain a list of the right beliefs and you're good with God. Because according to James, that is fake religion. And that kind of faith is dead. So fake religion divorces faith from works. But secondly, we see in this text, real religion marries faith and works. They are, they are put together, conjoined. You cannot have one without the other. Look down at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But J James responds, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There are some in the church that say you know, there's two types of Christians. There's the, the faith guys over here and there's the works guys over here. And some are better at this and some are better at that. Seeking to divide the two again, you know, pushing them apart. But James is saying, absolutely not. That is unthinkable. He says, if you think like that in verse 20, you are a fool. And in the context of what he's saying here, a fool isn't just an idiot or stupid person or whatever. Uh, in the biblical understanding, a fool is someone who is stubborn, who is resistant against God. They're in denial about God. You're a fool if you think you can do that. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Just let that sink in for a moment. What is justification? What does it mean to be justified? Justified or justification means to be declared righteous before God. And James is saying, you will be declared righteous before God by your works. 
Now, if you've been brought up in a Protestant tradition, you will instantly be thinking to yourself, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute, something smells fishy here. Because I've been brought up uh, in various ways, I've heard it in various, stated in various ways, we are justified, we are made right by faith alone. That's what we believe. And here James is saying something apparently opposite, contradictory. He's saying we're justified by works and not faith alone. Isn't it just like a massive contradiction? Hang on a minute, what's going on? Isn't the Bible supposed to be reliable? And yet here we have this really obvious clash. Justified by faith alone, justified by works alone. Which one is it? Because the two can't be true. Little history lesson. Back in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation can be summed up in many ways as as a, a recovery of the doctrine, the teaching of justification by faith alone. The reformers remembered again afresh that someone is made, a man or a woman is made righteous in the sight of God by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's one of the things that got the Protestant Reformation up and running. In fact, Martin Luther, one of the big players, a German monk who was converted when he realised this, said that justification by faith alone is the doctrine that's teaching, it's the teaching upon which the church stands or falls. If we, if, we, if, we, if we get this right, the church stands strong. If we mess this up, the church falls apart, according to him. And he wasn't just making this up either. Let's just look at this passage here from the Apostle Paul. Galatians 2 verse 16 says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But then what we're seeing this morning is that James is saying this, a person is justified by works and not faith alone. How can the two be in the Bible? Why is Paul saying one thing and Luther with him? And why is James saying another thing? How can we understand this? Well, if you give me a few minutes of your time, I'm going to hopefully explain to you why the two are not actually contradictory, even though it looks like it. Context is key. Context is key. Paul, up top there, Galatians 2, and he says this a whole bunch of other places. The whole book of Romans, Philippians, Ephesians. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul is dealing, when he writes stuff like that, he is dealing with a specific group of Jewish Christians who have been teaching and practicing that it is possible to be justified, that is declared righteous by works of the law. And by that they mean adherence to the Jewish law system, the Jewish law code. If you keep every single law in the Jewish law system, then God will declare you to be righteous. And so what does that mean? That means the the ceremonial food laws that the Jews had, uh, the the circumcision uh, for every male child aged eight days, Um, the Sabbath law codes, all these things and many more. If you keep all those, then you can become righteous in the eyes of God. That's how someone is made righteous before God. That's what they were saying. And that is why Paul writes stuff like this. Paul says, no, absolutely not. 
Paul used to think like that. He used to think like those Jewish Christians that we've just been thinking about. But then eventually one day he realized through revelation, he realized that Jesus of Nazareth was the Jewish Messiah. He was the son of God. And he realized that all of his efforts prior to that moment were never enough. Never going to achieve righteousness before God. Never going to achieve complete perfection. Never going to do it. He realized that Jesus is the only one who has done that. And it is through faith in Jesus. That you are made righteous before God. That you and me can be made righteous before God. This is the heart of the gospel. This deals with the question about how a holy and perfect God can put up and deal with and receive back unholy and sinful and rebellious people like me and like you. And here's how he does it. Justification by faith alone in Jesus. God forgives our sin and he accepts us as righteous based on the work of Jesus Christ alone. The obedience of Jesus Christ credited to you. His law keeping, his perfection is yours. You just receive it with the empty hands of faith. That's what justification is. Think of it like this. Imagine you took out a credit card a few years ago and you you put a thousand pounds on it. And for whatever reason, maybe you lost your job or you fell behind or what have you. You, you You couldn't make the minimum payments and you started to... Interest started to creep up. You were owed more and more. You started to default. And so you borrowed a little more money from a payday lender to pay off your credit card. And of course, the payday lender, the interest they charge is even higher. And so you find that what started as a £1,000 debt that you had is now £10,000. It's just spiralling. And then you borrow even more money from someone else. And before you know it, several years have gone by. And you owe, you, sorry, you owe someone £50,000. And this is not a small amount of money. You borrowed and borrowed and borrowed to cover up your more debt, more debt. But the further you got in, the deeper in debt you went. You were spiralling out of control. And, and you get to the stage where £50,000, there is no way out. Your life is dominated by your debt. It is impossible, you think, to be freed. <clears throat> Life is literally being crushed from you. There is nothing you can do to break out of the sentence of the life sentence that is upon you. Crushing debt. But imagine one day, the one to whom you owe £50,000 drops you a text message. And on the text message you read, I have chosen to wipe out your debt. That £50,000 that was crushing your life to the ground, I have chosen to wipe that out. Back to zero. You owe me nothing. You were never going to pay me back anyway. You can never do it. But now, you never need to. I have chosen to wipe that debt clear. That is what it is like when God forgives your sin. When he pardons you for your sin. He wipes it clean. That is what justification is. But that's not it. That is not it. Imagine that the person that you owed £50,000 to was not only content to wipe out your debt, because a second text message comes in 
And it says, I have chosen not only to wipe your debt clear, I have chosen to give you £500,000. You see, in that moment, you're more than just debt free. You're more than just zero balance. Now you've been given more than you have ever had in your life. Now you can purchase that house you need to live in. Now you can start to buy food because you don't need to miss meals anymore like you used to. Now you can start to really look after your family. Now you can be worry-free. You can start a new life. Because the person that you owe the debt to has not only wiped it clean, but has given you more than you could ever imagine. This is what happens when God takes the perfect record that Christ has achieved, his perfect law keeping, and he gives it to you. See, justification is about pardoning your sin, but it is also about giving you the perfections of Jesus. And both of those things happen at the moment you are justified when you place your faith in Jesus and what he has done for you. That is what happens. That is what Paul teaches. It is pardoning and it is giving righteousness. It is crediting righteousness to you. And can you imagine for a moment, this is kind of a sidestep a little bit, but anyway, let's go with this. Can you imagine right now, if that is you, if you have chosen to receive Christ by faith, you have opened the empty hands of faith. Can you imagine now, if you've been justified, how God views you? Can you imagine how he views you? If he sees you with the righteousness of his son, the perfect righteousness of the son upon you, God doesn't just tolerate you or put up with you. He delights in you. He cherishes you. You are one of his. You are one of his own children because you've been justified, declared righteous by something that Jesus has done. And you just accept that with, a, with, a, with the empty hands of faith. That's justification. And according to the Apostle Paul, you cannot earn that. Don't even try to earn it. You cannot earn it. It is a gift. It is grace. And it, folks, it, it is yours today. If you have not already opened the empty hands of faith to receive that, now's your time. It is a free gift. That's justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what Paul is teaching in his writings. Okay, you with me? Kind of? All right. James. Let's get back to James. James is writing in a very different context. He's dealing with a very different issue because he's not speaking to the same people that Paul is speaking to. He's not dealing with Jewish Christians uh, who think that they can uh, become righteous by obeying God through, through perfect law keeping. Because James, as we've been seeing, is speaking to believers, quote unquote, who think that they can have faith on its own without any good works, without any actions. He, he's speaking to people who think that they can have beliefs and not do anything with them. He's speaking to those who follow false religion. It's a very different context that James is writing into, different issues. And so he gives us two uh, classic examples, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is the revered father of the faith, the father of the Israelites. Uh, in verse 21, we see that. Uh, and uh, he, he, he gives us a sketch of, of uh, what's 
opened out in Genesis 22, that, that, that Abraham, the great father of the faith, um, had his faith tested to see whether it was real or whether it was fake. And uh, the, the background is, of course, that, that uh, Abraham was, was promised uh, to be the father of many nations, and yet he was in his 90s. Uh, the son that, that, that God had promised had never come along until Abraham was 99, and his wife was 90. And eventually, uh, a miraculous thing happened. She gave birth to a son, and they called him Isaac, the miracle child. And when Isaac was, was up a bit, when he was probably about eight or ten years old, uh, God then spoke again to, to Abraham, who is now well over 100, and said, take that son, the one you've been waiting a century for, and take him up to the mountain and, and, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Okay? That's what you've got to do. Take your son, your only son, the one you love. Up you go. And this is the amazing thing. Abraham trusted God. He listened. He trusted. He prepped. He got the wood. He got the donkey. He got everything sorted. And off they went up the mountain. And it says that he even got as far as preparing the altar, putting the boy on top of the altar. He lifted the knife about to slay his son. And then the angel came and said, stop. Don't go any further. Drop that weapon. He says, now I know that you fear God. Now I know that your faith in me is real. You see, Abraham had proven his faith in God by his works. Likewise with Rahab, we'll not spend much time on her. She, she is a, a character that we've come across before. She is a prostitute in the ancient city of Jericho. She hid the Israelite spies when they were sent by Joshua to scope out the land. She took them in at great cost to herself, great risk to herself. She hid them from the authorities who knew they were in the city somewhere. She even organized for their escape. She did all that. She wasn't an Israelite, but she did all that because she believed God. She believed the God of Israel was the real God, the one God. She had faith in him and her faith was proven by her works. In both cases, whether it's Abraham or Rahab, works were the physical manifestation of the real and true faith. So tightly joined together that James can say, these people were justified by their works. Proved their faith. And here at Foundation Church, we say, we are a community on mission. One of our church members... I'm not saying who came around a week or so ago with a batch of lasagna for me and Marion. And it was so nice. We're so thankful and appreciative. It was very, very timely. We had a very busy week and, and this person brought us a batch of lasagna. But the question is this. Did that lasagna make that person right before God? Was that person saved by lasagna? Of course not. That person was saved by faith alone in Christ alone, right? That's what Paul would say. But that lasagna was proof of that person's faith. That's what James would say. Faith was active with works. Faith completes works. Jesus said elsewhere, you can tell a tree by its fruit. Good tree bears good fruit. We want to be a church of lasagna 
that gives lasagna. We want to be a church community that is rich in acts of love and service as a proof of our faith in Jesus Christ. This is not second base Christianity, something that we do when we're more advanced and we're better off. We want to be the kind of church where our actions and our works flow out as, as our ordinary Bible religion, our real religion, our faith, which is married to works. And so here's my challenge. And with this, I close. Let us look for ways among us, even now as we stand in our relatively small number, let us look for ways to prove our faith. The early church in Acts 2 and Acts 4 gives us this wonderful picture and it says that there was no needy person among them. Why is that? Because those who had means, those who had riches, those who had wealth and resource gave. They shared. They offered up. Note, there is not much in the way of socio-economic or racial diversity among us here at the moment in Foundation Church. But let us take this moment, this season that we're in as a church, let us take this moment as an opportunity to practice that faith, working out in love. Let us take small practical steps to get this right now. Let, Let us look for ways to love and care and sacrifice for one another over and above ourselves. Let us not be content to just simply come in and warm the seats. Let us instead create a healthy culture now so that when people are added from outside, they will look in and they will see and experience deep and loving community already taking place. We are a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. Let us make sure that our faith and our works come together. And so whether it's with Aspire or other ministries or other opportunities, Let us look for opportunities to prove our faith to one another and to show the world our faith by our works. Faith without works is dead.